Welcome to University Chapel. How are you feeling this morning? Good? Did you have your coffee today? Did you enjoy the sun walking in? It was warm, I know, but the sun was nice. Did you have an opportunity to smell the roses in our garden? Yes. So let's give thanks to God for this as well. Our guest speaker today is Reverend Dr. Tal Howard, a professor of humanities and history from, I'm afraid to pronounce it incorrectly, uh, Val, Valparaiso University. And we are looking forward to hear your message. And as you will see at your bulletin, at the side of your bulletin, we keep you busy. Friends and lectures coming up this Friday at 7 p.m. Saturday, October 28th, is the Reformation 500 Years Worship to celebrate Reformation uh, here at 4.30. And on Wednesday, November 1st, Lutherans in the Holy Land at Lundring at 7 p.m. So all are welcome. Please come. Let us worship. Please rise. We come before God with the truth of our lives need of the grace of God. God has showered us with grace and mercy that we would do the same for others. Come, let us worship together, worshiping God who is present now, present always. Amen. We give thanks to God this day for one of our alum, Vicar Sam Nelson, who put pen to paper and has provided our morning litany. I was created in God's image, me, with my poor eyesight, tender heart, receding hairline, and sarcastic tongue. You, you were also created in the image of God, all of us, created in the image of a God who loves us. Then, as if being made in the image of God was not quite enough, then being like God was not even enough. No, we had to be exactly the same as God. It ends badly when ascending to such lofty heights because we stumble and fall. We fall down and we fall away from God. How much does God love us? God, daily dawning, brightly like the sun. God breathing new life into us daily. God revealing an endless love for us. And continuing to call us God's own. This is how much God loves us. Thanks be to God.
Please be seated. Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I ask not only behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here ends the reading. Thanks be to God. Good morning. morning. Bring you greetings from another uh, Lutheran University, Valparaiso in uh, Indiana, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my remarks this morning, just to give a little context, I've recently um, published two books. One's just called Protestantism After 500 Years, and the other is Remembering the Reformation, um, that I've been especially curious about how we go about the process of remembering the past or commemorating the Reformation at its 500th anniversary. And I'm especially concerned about um, uh, questions of ecumenism, uh, the branch of theology that deals with interfaith relations, especially among Christians, but among others uh, as uh, well. In A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens ruminates a wonderful fact that re- to reflect upon that every human creature is constituted to be that profound secret and mystery to every other. The psalmist writes, capturing the mystery of our being, what is man that thou art mindful of him? While both of these passages refer to generic man or human being, permit me to borrow their language and ask who 500 years after the fact is that profound secret and mystery who we know as Martin Luther? And why and how should we be mindful of him as we mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in a matter of days now? It's a difficult question, both because Luther and the Reformation beg enormous questions. Protestantism as a whole, it should be remembered, has not only been credited for recovering religious truth or blamed for church divisions, but in the eyes of historians has been seen as the cause of the modern nation state, liberalism, capitalism, religious wars, tolerance, democracy, individualism, subjectivism, nationalism, pluralism, freedom of conscience, modern science, modern science, secularism, and so much else. As the historian Brad Gregory has observed, what transpired five centuries ago continues to profoundly influence the lives of everyone, not only in Europe and North America, but all over the world. In light of such complexity, and given Cal Lutheran's particular connection to Luther, who again is Luther, and how should we be mindful of him now that the quincentennial anniversary is at hand? I've been pondering this question a lot lately, as I've indicated, 
And let me organize my remarks this morning under three headings. The bad, the good, and the hopeful. And as a cornerstone for my remarks, let me invoke the Eighth Commandment and Luther's gloss on it in the Shorter Catechism. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Should be a starting point, I think, when church-related academic communities remember events or peoples in the past, especially someone as important, as influential as Luther. And as Luther glosses on the commandment, one should even give one the benefit of the doubt and not deceitfully lie, betray, slander, or defame. But not bearing false witness also means remembering the bad. In light of many past triumphalist and uncritical remembrances of the Reformation, and I've studied a number of these of how Luther was remembered in a very nationalistic idiom, say in 19th and 20th century Germany, but in other places as well. I think it's incumbent upon us today to remember the darker sides of the Reformation as well. The list to many of you is probably well known. Civil wars, destructive iconoclasm, confession expired executions, wars of religion that ravaged Europe in the 16th and 17th century. Now, of course, not all of this can be blamed on Luther, but the Reformation did lead to a lot of religious warfare. We might do well in 2017 to remember the Swiss humanist Sebastian Castillo's arresting line. To kill a man is not to defend a doctrine. It is to kill a man. And yes, there's Luther's anti-Semitism or his excoriating treatment of peasants, Anabaptists, and Ottoman Turks and Muslims. Uh, in light of the Holocaust and ongoing tensions in Christian-Jewish relations, it's particularly necessary, I think, to candidly acknowledge Luther's tract he wrote till the end of his life on the Jews and their lives, in which he recommends, quote, to set fire to their synagogues or schools and to, to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn. Some pretty harsh things. And again, many people in this time would have had this type of attitude, but it's important at least to recognize it at this commemoration moment. There's also Luther's escalation of rhetoric of, of, against the Pope as the Antichrist. Rhetoric, of course, readily reciprocated from the Catholic side. Pope Leo X called Luther a wild boar in the fields of the Lord. For both Catholics and Protestants today, I recommend Stanley Hauerwas's line that, quote, if we no longer have broken hearts at the church's division, then we cannot help but unfaithfully celebrate the Reformation. In our own tolerant age, we easily forget, or are tempted to be tolerant age, we often forget how nasty confessional polemics were in the past. But let me remind you uh, of them by quoting the title of a lecture series established at Harvard, then Protestant Harvard, in the 18th century. The series was to be devoted to, quote, detecting and convicting and exposing the idolatry of the Romish church, their tyranny, usurpations, damnable heresies, fatal errors, abominable superstitions, and other crying wickednesses in their high places. But not bearing false witness also means not interpreting historical actors exclusively through the lenses of their most uh, reprehensible words, of taking the easier path of denunciation over the more difficult path, path of discrimination. On this point, permit me to appeal to the Roman virtue of pietas, loyalty to one's kin, a duty and devotion to the past, 
our past, your past, that while sensitive to the negative, does due diligence in seeking out the positive, the praiseworthy. Any memory of Luther and the Reformation that only deplores the blemishes, that in the fear of the bathwater of traditionalism throws out tradition too, does a disservice to both past and present. So yes, let Bach be praised in 2017. Protestants and Lutherans in particular have good reason to delight in the memory of many things, the recovery of a theology of the laity, the ordinary saints, the teaching of the priesthood of all believers, and the searching Catholicity of the Augsburg Confession, the first Lutheran confessional document, and the educational legacy of figures such as Philip Melanchthon, who we were talking about earlier, and the dual emphasis on the free and serving nature of the devout life, and not least, Luther and other reformers' accent on call or calling, uh, an idea that has been enormously fruitful in recent years for re-envisioning church-related higher education. And of course, this list is partial. Many other praiseworthy things. Finally, my last category, the hopeful. Any Christian body or institution set to commemorate the Reformation in 2017, I think, must reckon with the far-reaching implications of the ecumenical movement of the 20th century, the Second Vatican Council of the Catholic Church, along with John Paul II's historic encyclical on ecumenism, entitled Ut Unum Sent, which comes from the passage in John's, Let Them Be One. The topic is of importance for Christianity today, and especially Protestant bodies, who sadly have made an art form of sowing divi divisions. Where two or three are gathered in my name, shall probably be four or five churches. But I believe this imperative of unity flows directly from the words of Christ in the Gospel of John, just read. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in you, in me through their word, that they all may be one. I believe fraternal relations among Christians, scripture and tradition hold, all to be a model also for human cooperation and goodwill in general. Regrettably, Christian practice has seldom lived up to Christian principle on this score. And in fact, the latter has often gravely contradicted the former. But remembrance of the Reformation in 2017 just might provide impetus for narrowing the gap between the two if the right conciliatory habits of the heart and mind are cultivated. So in 2017, October 31, 2017, to be more particular now, I think it's theologically important to think of the Reformation in historical terms and not theological ones alone. Theologically important to think in historical terms. As the best scholarship on the 16th century makes clear, the Reformation occurred as a bewildering, complex, confusing set of historical events, not as a checklist of doctrinal principles that dropped out of the sky after 1517. Multiple problems come from the Reformation era, looking at it strictly from a theological standpoint, although I can see that's very important as well. Sometimes they, over, they encourage an oversimplified story of this period's place in church history that conveniently lends credence to one's own religious standpoint. By contrast, an honest appraisal of the contingency, messiness, the unexpected sources, and ironic outcomes of the Reformation, uh, <clears throat> something too often overlooked in past commemorations that I've studied, might help one st step back 
gain perspective, and regard the conclusions, uh, for Lutherans and Protestants at least, as important but not necessarily set in stone in perpetuity. Attention to the historical accidents of the Reformation um, has been one of the key factors allowing for significant ecumenical progress in recent years. With a more sensitive approach to history, divided Christians today have been creating areas of common ground where none seemed to exist beforehand. Taking stock together and repenting of painful memories, not historical ignorance or affected amnesia, marks out the royal arduous road of unity, according to John Paul II in this papal letter encyclical, Let Them Be One, and I quote from that. The commitment to Christian unity must be based upon the conversion of hearts, upon prayer, which will also lead to the necessary purification of past memories. With the grace of the Holy Spirit, the Lord's disciples, inspired by love, by the power of the truth, and by a sincere desire for mutual forgiveness and reconciliation, are called together to re-examine together their painful past and the hurt which this past regrettably continues to provoke today. Now for a concrete example of what I'm talking about, we might consider the path laid down by the Lutheran Mennonite Dialogue, whose first ever jointly written history of Lutheran Anabaptist relations paved the way for a public declaration of repentance and request for forgiveness on the part of the Lutheran World Federation in 2010, which was met with a full declaration of forgiveness on the part of the Mennonite World Conference. As the Lutheran Mennonite Joint Report movingly recorded, quote, the past cannot be changed, but we can change the way the past is remembered in the present. This is our hope. Reconciliation does not only look back into the past, rather it looks into a common future. The prospects of one's imminent death, Samuel Johnson famously said, wonderfully concentrates the mind. The same might also be said for preparing for, reflecting on, and observing major commemorative dates. To be sure, there is something naggingly arbitrary about large centennial numbers such as 500, but why not make a virtue out of necessity? Insofar as they have the capacity to focus attention on the past, which is inevitably constitutive of our present, marking them has the potential to foster reflection and self-examination. And with respect to painful and divisive memories, perhaps change for better, quote, the way the past is remembered in the present. Sadly though, this potential has not always been realized at past anniversaries and centennials, and instead often partisan, xenophobic, and narrowly time-bound concerns too often prevailed. This is going to be at least part of the subject of my talk I'm giving tonight in here on some of the history of Reformation commemorations. True enough, but the past is not necessarily prologue to the present, and therefore, equipped with retrospective insight and the virtue of hope, one might be forgiven for believing that this time around, in 2017, things might be just a little different, that unity will ultimately prevail over division, trust over fear, and not least, love over hate. Thank you very much.
Almighty God, whose beauty co compels our attention, whose love steals our hearts, whose very nature evokes our awe. Thank you for pro pro propelling us to discover the splendor of your kingdom, restoring us the desires to be curious in love and in in look for, for you in every moment. See you in every being and discover you in every breath. Amen. <laughs>